Uh, so tonight we, uh, we made some strides towards becoming more like a traditional church because I watched everyone walk in and like in complete disarray because they weren't in their seat, all right? Like some of you were, some of you were having tremors, right? Like, oh, oh, someone's sitting in my seat, where is it, right? Uh, so we, we made, some, made some good strides tonight. <laughs> so I want to ask you a couple questions that won't be easy to answer, but I think, I think they're the right questions uh, to ask. So let's start with this question. Um, how many promises do you make in a day? So every single day that goes by, how many promises do you make? I want to hear some possible answers. Any ideas? How many do you think? Five or six, okay. Anything, anyone think it's like over 100 promises that you make? All right. So, so now, now let's switch it. Next slide, let's ask the question this way. How many promises do you break in a day? And some of you have yet to like process what this means, so I want to help you. Here are some very common lies in promises that we make every single day. I'll be five minutes late, when in actuality, you're seven or eight. Let's get together soon, which means let's get together never, okay, right? Right, like any time, like, that's just like the kindness banter. How about this one? How about a heavy one? I forgive you. I watch my kids, like, you know, when we tell them, all right, so, you know, what to say, Dawson, say, I forgive you, right? And so he says the right words, but then you realize us as adults aren't that much different. We know we're supposed to say, I forgive you. How many times have you lied in saying it? Uh, This is a classic husband answer. I'll think about it, okay? Which is a husband uh, interpretation for, I will never, ever think about this again, okay? Uh, And maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Uh, you've said before, oh, it's no big deal, right? Like, like something happened and you tried to play it off. Man, it's, it's no big deal. It's all good. But in your heart, you were like you wanted to judge them far, far away from the planet, right? How about this one? I'll call you later, right? Also known as I'll call you never. And then the biggest Christian promise that gets broken is I'm praying for you. Now, what I've done is I've tried to understand why this happens. Why do we spend so much time lying? And so I've read a bunch of research. I've done uh, as much study as I possibly can. And here's what I've realized. On next slide, let's say it this way. Saying you are going to do something feels just as good as actually doing it. In other words, if, uh, if I go to Jesse, okay, good friend Jesse Moran, great dude, and him and I are in a conversation, and I find out that his, uh, man, that he, you know what would really bless him is if I raked his leaves, okay? Do you even have trees at your house? I don't know. You do? Okay, you have a few trees. And so I find out that, that his leaves need to be raked. And so me wanting to be known to him as a thoughtful person, I tell him, oh, hey, brother, like, Anytime you want me to come and help you rake your leaves, you say the word. Really, in my heart, what I'm hoping happens is he never, ever calls me. But I want him in that moment to believe that I'm a thoughtful person. And it feels good to me to say that 
whether or not the action ever happens, because I believe he's walking away then thinking all of these positive thoughts about Mark. This happens in your marriage. This happens in relationships. Uh, You're talking to a parent. You can tell they're overwhelmed with their children. You throw out the flippant comment, right? Like, oh, I'd love to help watch your kids sometime. All of these open-ended things. Really, in our heart, we don't want that at all. But what we want them to walk away thinking is that we're a faithful friend. Oh, surely they would drop everything. Now, this starts to get pretty deep. Because what you realize, much of our conversation is then over-promising and under-delivering, all centered around our insecurity. All centered around, as great as I can make myself feel, as awesome as I can portray myself, then that is really what my desire is. The implications on this truth into our walk with Christ literally is insane. It's interconnected in ways that I have never even imagined or thought of. Tonight we're going to walk through that, all through this um, story of Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. Now, um, I grew up singing the song, okay, I went to church when I was a kid, so I sang the song in Sunday school, my guess is some of the rest of you sang it as well. So just to get us all on the same page, I found the most creepy version of Joshua fought the battle of Jericho ever, so cue the video, here you go, this is going to be somewhat scary to you guys, I believe, but check this out, here we go, feel feel free to snap if you want, what's that kid doing, look at this kid. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, 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 Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. You may talk about your men of Gideon, you may talk about your men of Saul, but there's none like good old old Joshua at the battle of Jericho. Oh yeah, feel it buddy. Well, here's the problem. I grew up singing a false song. I grew up believing that David was a hero when he slain Goliath. I grew up believing that Abraham was really the the man of faith that we should all uh, admire. I grew up believing that Joshua was the one that fought the battle of Jericho. And I just want to put us all on the same page before we turn to Joshua 6 tonight. God fought the battle of Jericho. The Lord fought the battle of Jericho. And if we can begin with that premise tonight, then I'm telling you what, this text in Joshua 6 verses 1 to 14 will open our eyes to new truths about the powerful character of God. So open your Bibles, my friends, to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. I don't think so. Joshua chapter 6. There's been a lot of preparation that have been made for this moment. The nation of Israel, 1.5 to 2.5 million of them have now crossed the Jordan River. They're able to see Jericho on the horizon. And now, my friends, it is go time. Chapter 6, verse 1. 
Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now you remember last week we saw what's happening is the people in Jericho are getting fearful because they've heard of what the God of Israel has done. Uh, They've heard the stories, they heard the stopping of the river. And so what's going on right now is they are literally paralyzed with fear. And so they, they, shut, they shut her down. They shut the city down. Which, interestingly enough, is a, a common form of ancient warfare. You would uh, go to a fortified city. You would, as an army, just encamp around it and cut off their resources. So it's interesting they would set themselves up for it, but they're so fearful. Okay, so I want to show you guys where Jericho is. Cue the map here. I've shown this map a few times. The green on the right side there shows you the path that they've been on. Uh, You'll remember uh, Shatim there, just to the right of the Jordan River, and then they cross to Gagal, and there's Jericho. Now, obviously Jericho isn't standing anymore, okay? So a little precursor to the story. So I wish I had some actual pictures for you of like the actual, you know, architecture and the things that happened. The best that I can do right now is try uh, to paint your imagination with a few images of what Jericho at the time might have looked like. So next slide, this is one rendition. Uh, I've shown this before, actually, when we started Joshua. Uh, This kind of displays more of a moat around it. But you can see the common theme about what was very, very substantial in Jericho. Two fortified walls that surrounded the entire city. Uh, It's been said that the first wall was maybe six feet wide, uh, maybe 12 to 15 feet high. But there was a gap between the two walls, houses and timber in between the two, and that the second wall was even more substantial. This next rendering gives us maybe a little bit different perspective of some of the, not just the, um, uh, not just the the walls themselves, but the topography, okay, because this sat on a hill. And I think probably the most accurate uh, is this this, uh, drawing, next slide, this picture of Jericho. So I just, as best as we can, you're going to have to try to understand two sides of the story. The Israelites walking up to Jericho, and just for a second, I want you to put yourself inside the city. Your walls have uh, kept out many an enemy, but now all of a sudden, in the town, in the village, in the city, there's panic. People are in their homes, You're seeing people kind of walk around the city every once in a while. You're hearing lots of rumors. But listen to this. This is what didn't happen in the Sunday School Felt story. Okay, no one ever put up a family with children in Jericho and described the fear that must have been going on in the parents as they started to consider the fact that maybe their kids would die. See, see, before we have the opportunity to begin to believe that Joshua chapter 6 is child's play, I want you to understand what's going on in the city. Moms and dads are sitting in the corner of their homes wondering if their family will be no more. This is, this is the reality. Okay? So Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and like everyone singing It's a Small World After All with smiling faces. But this is an intense, very honestly difficult story. So let's look now at verse 2, which 
is so incredible that I hope if there's one verse tonight that you walk away with, it might be this. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. There's one word in this verse that I pray right now grabs every facet of you. Next slide. I've highlighted it here in yellow. See. God says, look, like I, I've given you the city. But if I'm Joshua right now, I'm like, have you really? Like, are you sure? Because we haven't inhabited yet. Like, it's, we're not victorious yet. But God already is setting up what's going to happen by saying, look, Joshua, like, I, I've given it to you. Now, Joshua can't see inside. Maybe he can see some of the scatterings of people. But what's happening here is the Lord is showing the power right here in verse 2 of even though Joshua couldn't see it, next slide, let's say it this way, even though Joshua can't see it, the question is, will he believe in God's promise of victory? Even though he can't see that the city is down, that the walls are to the ground, even though he's having to right now believe that what the Lord would say would come true, he can't see it. The question is, will he believe the promise? Will he trust? What will the nation of Israel do? Next slide. I want to challenge us with this perspective. I think there's some possible factors that as Joshua starts to wrestle with, do I trust this, that I'm sure is going on in his mind, that maybe would be going on in yours. Number one, God's track record. Certainly a factor of his trust, right? What have we seen so far? Joshua has witnessed the sea part, he's seen a river stop. He has now only seen time after time after time of God's faithfulness. Over and over. Manna falling from the sky, God providing water from rocks. He has seen a consistent track record of God's faithfulness. So surely, when God says, look, I've given you the land, I've given you the city, it's ready to be yours, even though it's not conquered yet, this has to be a factor in his faith. Next slide, another possible factor. As great as he starts to feel about God's faithfulness, is he's also looking at 1.5 to 2.5 million people, including the elderly, including some of his own family. And then he's looking at the fortified city. And even though God clearly says, this is yours, a possible factor in his faith, maybe a possible factor in yours, is, yeah, but what about this, God? Are you sure? Like, God, are you really going to protect this 90-year-old woman here? Like, she's seen so much. Right. Another possible factor in Joshua's faith, I believe, is this. The doubt or encouragement of others. You guys know the power of this, right? Like, God has said, I've given you the city, but then all of a sudden someone, potentially, it didn't happen in the Scripture comes up and says, hey, Joshua, look, I know you mean well here, but think about how many times others have put doubts in your mind even though you didn't even have them. Like you were in a place of complete and utter faithfulness to the Lord. But one comment from someone, one cultural reference, all of a sudden caused doubt. How about the power of the body of Christ 
when we speak of, on the opposite side, God's faithfulness? How powerful is it then when all of a sudden we're encouraged by someone else who reminds us that God is alive? At the man retreat, there was a brother uh, right in the middle of everything that shared with me, Mark, I'm so thankful that we've taken time for men to share their story and what God's done because I came into the weekend disbelieving the power of God in my life and the hearing of the testimonies and the stories of the body of Christ has like dug deep into my heart. This is why here at Matthias, listen, we're so, so, so privileged to have community and the opportunity for relationships. It's definitely a factor in our faith and certainly in Joshua's. How about number four, another possible factor? How many of you guys would consider yourselves more on the science bent of things by raise of hands, okay? I know Suzanne, former scientist, a few of you guys. Logic in Joshua's world right now, to date, has made no sense. They get on the other side of the Jordan, you'll remember, God commands Joshua to circumcise a massive amount of people pre-battle. Not logical. God's stopping a river. Not logical. What God's going to command them to do in Jericho. Not logical. I just want to make sure just in a few small sentences in the scripture that you cherish the pattern that we see in the Lord. If you need logic, my friends, it's going to be a long, long journey. Because God takes what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has a pattern of taking things that don't make sense and making them so, so that he might be the one that gets the glory and not those who can make a logical sense of his movement. Are we together? And so certainly in you and in Joshua at this point, logic has to be a factor. See, God says, well, hold on. But my logic says, God, this isn't going to work. Like, we need, like, guns or deeper firepower, right? The last factor, certainly there's others. I want to explain this. I think it's the biggest factor. And I'm not just talking about Joshua whatsoever. I'm talking about us. Here's what happens. God's taken us thus far, but now it's my turn. See what I'm saying? God's taken us a long way, 40 years through the wilderness, across the Jordan, provided food. Now, another possible factor in Joshua is, it's my turn now. He looks back at his army, and he sees capable people. He's starting to look at the fortified city, and he starts believing, I don't need the Lord to do this. And you know what? It would be better if I just do it on my own, because then people will make much of me. I just want to bring to light right now before we take one step further. If you don't think that your pride is a factor in your faith, if I don't think that my pride is a factor in my trusting God, we must wake up. God, you've taken me this far, but surely now it's my time to take over. All of these factors are driving an unbelievable moment for Joshua and the nation of Israel. And my friends, let's look at the very logical command in verse 3. Check this out. You shall, of course, march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Okay, if you've seen 
Braveheart, uh, Saving Private Ryan, you've seen this exact philosophy, right? If you're going to take over and besiege a city, uh, the plan in warfare is you just simply march around it. Your enemies will lay their weapons down, everyone hugs it out, and we call ourselves victors. Not, not, like, not even close. Okay. There's nothing logical about this moment in the scripture whatsoever. Hold on a second. We're going we're gonna to march? And so I had um, one of the kids who knew that we were studying Joshua came in tonight, and they're like, Pastor Mark, are, did you set it up in a round so that we can march around like the room? And I just looked at him, and because he was like, he's so excited, right? And I was like, no, we didn't actually at all. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate your thought, right? Like, um, but certainly we get the perspective of what's going on here. March around the city. Go for it. But not just that. Hello, verse 4. Check this out. This is crazy. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. The ark of the covenant. We'll talk about that later. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. First, let's address the elephant in the room. Next slide, I've highlighted here in green something very interesting. There's several mentions of the number seven, which excites so many of you who love biblical numerical value. Okay. And this one time, even though there's a few others in the scripture, you have credence. Okay. Because normally I'm making fun of it, right? Like normally I'm saying, oh, it's three, and just, you know, and on the third day, and, you know, Mark chapter three, verse 33, which, you know, like all those things, people get weird. But in this case, I think seven is used very strategically. A seven generally in the Bible is a number that signifies completion. So I thought just for fun, I'd show you some of the other sevens. You can enjoy this next slide with some of your friends later. The Sabbath is the seventh day, seven weeks from Passover to Pentecost. The difference between when Jesus uh, dies and then when they celebrate the Pentecost. The seventh year is the uh, sabbatical year on the ancient Jew world over after 49 years, which is seven times seven. That's right. A quick math there is the year of Jubilee and three of Israel's feasts are in the seventh month. So for all of these things, seven priests, seven trumpets, etc., etc., to happen, I believe God chooses them strategically. But now back to the verse, okay? Because this is, next slide, we, we, need to, we need to see what's going on here. Let's read verse 5 again together. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and with the shout, the wall of the city will fall, the scripture says, flat. Again, I don't know why those who wrote the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, would somehow assimilate this verse with that truth, because I see that nowhere. You're going to march around the city, and then guess what I'm going to do, says the Lord. I'm just going to drop the wall. I am so thankful that we serve a God who is capable of doing anything. And yet, at, at the same time, as I speak those words out of my mouth, I am ashamed at how often I put him in a corner, believing sometimes 
that he can do almost nothing. And I want right now for the Lord to flood our trust and our faith. That's the question right now. Will the nation of Israel, will Joshua, will they trust? Will they believe? Will they know that they have victory in the promise of Christ? Verse 6. So Joshua, the son, that's right, of who? Come on, you guys all should know it by now. Of none, called the priests. Weird, crazy commands, marching, the blowing of horns, eventual shouting, and the wall's going to come down. Joshua, the son of none, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. Now, I want to make sure we all understand what's going on here. The Ark of the Covenant was the signifier, not just of the presence of God, but literally held the law of God and the presence of God in it. And as the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan River, you remember, the priests also carried the covenant into the river. Okay, So now they're going to take the same Ark and take this Ark, and now it's going to be a part of the procession of battle. All right? It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. And I love verse 7. And he said to the people, can we just read the next two words together? Go forward. Let's do it one more time. Come on. Go forward. March around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Now, when we get home sometimes at night as a family, um, a lot of times in the van, we're already strategizing about who's going to take the first shower. Some of you guys who have kids do this as well. Okay? Uh, the downstairs shower in my house is the communal shower for all of my kids. We just, you know, it's like a conveyor belt of showering. What happens is uh, a lot of times our lights are off in our, in our home. Okay? So if you want to rob us, then you'll know how to do so. And um, the lights are off in our home. And so we'll come in our house, and let's say that um, I've chosen Maddox to take the first shower. Hey, Maddox, Mad Dog, you're going to take the first shower. All right, Dad, sounds good. We'll all come in, and then Maddox is still standing at the top of the stairs. Hey, Maddox, like, you're the first in the shower, bro. Like, come on, man, like, move. It's time to go. And I always know the look when he looks at me, and when he says, "Uh, hey, hey, Dawson, you you want to come downstairs with me? And he's trying to act innocent, you know. He's trying to act like he's not scared. But really what he's saying is, I don't want to go downstairs alone, right? So he steps back and he tells Dawson, hey, listen, why don't you go on forward, right? Like, let, let's get going. Uh, so some of you guys have ever uh, went to a haunted house, a cave, okay? Uh, sometimes you're looking down a long hallway and you had some friends with you. And you're like, hey, I'll get the back. Like, why don't you, why don't you go on ahead? You know what I'm saying? I, I got this. You got a better flashlight on your phone. Why don't you go ahead and go forward, right? It's so powerful to me that of all the things that Joshua could have said, he says, go forward. And I want to help you understand right now why that in this moment in time for the nation of Israel is so powerful. I want to say it this way. Next slide. When we go forward in obedience to the general commands of God, our hesitancy will dissipate toward the specific commands. What I mean is, listen to this. We find ourselves often in obedience like Maddox. Waiting on the top of the stairs, wanting others to go first. 
not really desiring to walk in obedience, fearful of all the things that are down below, all the unknowns. But you guys will know this. What you find is when you are obeying the Lord through the commands that His Scripture holds, your hesitancy to do the specific things that He will call you to do, move somewhere, take a different job, leave a relationship, pursue your neighbor, share the gospel with a coworker. All of the very specific promptings that the Holy Spirit provides you and says now, if you are obeying, love your enemies. If you find yourself obeying, making disciples. If you find yourself cherishing, hey, find unity within the body of Christ and all the commands of the scripture, you become way, way, way less hesitant in the specifics. And all you hear constantly is the Lord saying, go forward, it's time, go. The lack of faith and the disobedience that prompts condemnation, which causes hesitancy, is gone because you're walking in obedience. That's Joshua, that's the nation of Israel, and so the specific commands now, let's even say it, like what seems like the crazy commands, march around the city, shout out, ram's horns, seven priests carrying the ark, all these weird, very specific things. They're able to walk in obedience and go forward. Why? Because they find themselves listening to the voice of God in the rest of the aspects of their life. Do you see hesitancy right now in your life? You feel promptings from the Holy Spirit guiding you into difficult situations where you'll be exposed, having to trust. Do you find yourself on your heels, almost backing away from the challenge? I want to propose to you, is it possible because there's massive areas of disobedience in other facets of your life? What I'm saying is obedience prompts in our heart, this confidence in the Lord that our disobedience and shame and potential condemnation start to take away. And so Joshua says, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark. We'll get to the procession here in a second, verse eight. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, you see that just, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord, what do they do? They went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. Listen, please see this. It's one thing for Joshua to say, yes, God. But it's a whole other thing for these commands to start to trickle down and people actually follow them. Because again, like I'm picturing myself as one of the priests, like, like say What? Like, we've already taken this thing in the river and had to stand there as everyone else passed by, and now you're asking us to march around the city with this thing? Like, it's a big city. We're going to get tired. Joshua, are you sure? But we see this communal, together obedience. It's unbelievably beautiful. And I hope just for a second you see the power of it. I, I started to uh, search um, cartoon pictures of this, um, of this story because I think it almost helps us understand how much the story has been made light of. So here's one that I found that I really wanted to show you. Uh, if you can't see it, so here's, uh, here's some of the folks with the horns. There's butterflies in the picture. Uh, you can't see it. There's a dog in the lower right-hand uh, piece of this picture, and there's a cat, like, on the upper tier, right? 
I mean, butterflies, okay? Like, seriously? Right. Again, every time I've ever studied Joshua and Jericho, the consideration of what's actually going on has never been a part of it. I want you to understand right now, this is life and death for everyone involved. I want to propose to you that the way this is drawn is precisely how much American Christianity is getting mocked and distorted because you and I aren't embracing the fact that it's life and death. It is life and death. When you show up in your workplace bearing the message of the gospel on your heart through your lips, my friends, it is life and death. When we have homes in neighborhoods and shut our doors and don't know the names of those that we live around and have lived around for 15 years, they've never been invited to our home, we've never made a dessert, there's no hospitality connection, I want you to again remind yourself That what you've signed up for is not coming to a worship gathering. You have signed up to be a missionary wherever you are for the cause of Christ. It's not child's play, my friend. We have the message of hope and life. God's given it on our lips. And even though butterflies are pretty, it's so much deeper than that. And so I love the fact then that verse uh, 9 and 10 Show some power. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. Look at verse 10. This is crazy. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. Why? Why? Okay, I really like uh, the movie um, Braveheart. fires me up. Inspiring. This uh, practice is not in Braveheart at all. Okay? Like, there's a lot of yelling, right? There's a lot of, like, war cries. And so, like, I'm picturing, again, uh, the city of Jericho and a bunch of trumpets being sounded, but people not talking. Utterly silent. And I've had to ponder, like I hope you are right now, like why? Why is this? I think it's twofold primarily. Number one, even though this is a victorious march, it is a solemn one. Let me, let me share what I mean. We have victory in Christ, right? Victory in Christ. We have it now. Our sins have been crucified on the cross of Christ, Scripture says. But can I ask you this? Have you ever been so burdened by the lostness around you that you were brought to silence because you realized the heaviness of judgment on sin? It's that weird tension that we live in, like we are victorious in Christ Jesus, like we know we have victory. And yet you guys know, you get around certain people or in situations when the lostness or sin is so heavy and it's so, like it has this solemn silencing effect. You know that the period of grace is still open, that people can turn and repent. 
that even the worst of sinners or some of those who you have counted out can still come to the Lord, but still there's this heaviness, isn't there? Now, I believe the nation of Israel is putting two and two together. They, they know now what's going to happen. This city is going to go down. And again, it's not, it's not pomp and circumstance. There are children that are going to die. Men and women that will die. And so as they march, oh yes, it's victorious. And that's the only piece that the child story portrays. But I want you to understand the solemnness, the silence that had to be heavy for them as they knew the victory that God would provide. I think that's one side of it. I think the other side is there's a level for the people inside the walls that I'm even going to say like provides this understanding of the grandeur of who God is that as people don't even have to, for lack of a better term, trash talk, that the Lord will do what the Lord will do. And that's this whole story. The Lord is doing the work. He's allowing, please hear this, he's allowing his people to play a part in the sharing of the promise. And that is a beautiful thing that God does in his sovereignty. Now, verse 11. Silence, solemn. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So here's the procession. You have some armed men in front of the ark. You have the ark, and then you have a rear guard. That's the procession here. I've done as much research as I can, even though verse uh, 6 and 7 give reference to the people. I don't believe that this is all of the Israelites that are making this march. Okay, I believe that we have clear indication here, even in a couple verses, that these are some of the armed men, or the priests then that we see, and a rear guard. Still, still uh, several thousand here a part of this. Okay, So let's keep going here in verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. We've already seen this multiple times. Why does he rise early in the morning? Because he wants to ensure that his army is getting ready. That his people are ready to what? To obey. A leader doesn't get up slothfully. A leader wakes up and makes sure that his folks are ready to go. He rose up early in the morning. And the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Here they go. Staying in the camp. Now they're on their way back to Jericho. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the lamb's horn before the ark of the Lord walked, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. Imagine the sound. Imagine what the city of Jericho is feeling. It's one thing to experience that on day one. Now experiencing it day after day after day. Imagine the tension rising. Again, because nothing happened on day one. They marched. So imagine yourself, right? Like there's this, maybe this like shimmer of hope. Oh, maybe God just sent a parade, right, to entertain us with some trumpets and quiet people, right? But then day two. Can't you picture a dad walking out of his home and he's, he like points his ear Hold on a second. I think I think I hear. I, I think I hear trumpets, and then he goes over to someone who is a little bit closer to the wall, who's done some recon, and he finds out. Yep, here they come again. You guys understand what I'm saying? 
The tension now is rising. One thing for them to come one day, but for this to happen multiple times, all of a sudden we're in new territory. Middle verse 13, and the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Day after day after day. And the people and the children and the elderly in Jericho feeling the weight of it all. Now, remember when we asked, next slide, this question. Even though Joshua can't see it, will he believe? The answer is what? A resounding yes. God is just showing him something that Joshua can't even conceptualize yet. And the resounding answer is, I will trust your promise. Even though I don't know it yet, even though I can't receive it yet, I will trust you, God. Now, I want to ask the question a different way. Next slide. Let's say it this way. Even though you can't see it, do you believe in God's promise of you fill in the blank? Did you know this, that God's word is filled with promises over and over and over? One promise after another, many of which, many of which we have yet to fully embrace or encounter. So the question for us is, as God says, you see, listen, like here's what Christ has done. And so because of what Christ has done, you see what I've given you? Do you see what you have? The question is, is that enough for us? Or do the factors of our faith, the logic that we battle with, the discouragement or the doubt of others, our own sin, let's say it this way, our own pride, do those things cause us to look at the beautiful promises in the Scripture and say, I know this is in the Scripture and that it's a promise, but I can't trust it. Now, all of a sudden for me when I got to this point, my heart exploded. And I want to tell you why. Next slide. You guys remember this? Saying you're going to do something feels just as good as actually doing it. You remember that? I believe one of our greatest battles in trusting the promises of God is we have attached this not to people or ourselves, but to the Lord. We believe deep down that this is a statement that God would make. That God then is just well-wishing, giving his people a bunch of attaboys. Hey, I'll only be five minutes late, but I can show up eight. I'm God. Hey, I love you most of the time, but not really. And because of all of the times that we've been lied to, all the times that people have made promises and underdelivered, all of the times that we've got in the rhythm ourselves, 
of feeling good about speaking something and never following through, we then believe deep down at times that this is the way that God operates. Listen, that the Bible then is just a bunch of well-wishing. That the scripture then is just a big book to help us feel better about how we feel about our eternity. Oh yeah, no, I know God says he loves me, but he really doesn't mean it. I know God says that he'll provide this for me, but it can't actually come true. He's just trying to make me feel better. Just like all of the Christians that told me they're praying for me and never did. That's just like God is. I want to step back. I'm phrasing this, I hope, appropriately. I am ashamed of the amount of times that I've taken my experience with people and made that then to be an attribute of God. I'm ashamed. Because this person wronged me, then God must too. Because this person isn't trustworthy, then there's no way God can be trustworthy. Because this person betrayed me, oh, God will too. He'll orphan me again. Are you got, like, I am ashamed. Now, there's no condemnation in Christ. But there's something that's been rising up in me that's so deeply rooted in conviction that longs to see God for who he is. And so I'm thankful for as much as I made a mockery at times of the character of God that his grace rains down. Anybody else? And so listen, because his grace rains down, then here's what I want to do is I want to challenge us with the word. If we were to believe that his promises meant something and that we could live in light of them, just like Joshua and the Israelites did. See, I have it for you. Go, go forward. I've got it for you. But we don't have it yet, but the city walls are there. It's okay. Just go. I've got it. I want to give you two examples. Next slide. John 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them in the red letters, Jesus says, he is it who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Does anyone believe that's a promise? I certainly do. Okay? And I will love him, also a promise, and manifest myself to him. Now before some of you run doctrinally and think that what Jesus is saying is that your works somehow manifest his love, what Jesus is pointing out is what James will later point out, that faith without works is dead. You can say all you want that you believe in God. Joshua could shout it from the mountaintops. I believe in you, God. And then God says, go forward. And Joshua says, no. What does it say then? That he doesn't trust in God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying your life will reflect your trust in me. And so when we live like his promise means something, we keep his commandments in response to who he is, not to gain his love or earn his love, but in response of it, then the blessing of the promise is that we will be loved by the Father and by Jesus, of which we will not even know the fullness of until we are in eternity with him forever. But we're living in light of it now. 
I am and will be loved by the Father. I am and will be loved by the Son. And my life now has the chance to reflect what God's done by looking at his commandments as gifts and not burdens. See what I'm saying? That's what trusting in his promises mean. Now, I want to show you another one. Check this out. Next slide. In Matthew chapter 24. Hello. Therefore, red letters, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That seems like a promise to me, anyone else. A, he's coming back. Hallelujah, right? I know some of you are like, please, Lord, like now, come back. Sooner the better. But he's not just coming back. He's coming back at an hour that we do not expect. You guys have heard me say this before. It's why I'm always telling people who are trying to proclaim that he's coming back tomorrow to be quiet because that means he's not, right? Stop predicting the return of the Lord because he's definitely not coming back then, right? So everyone just be quiet, okay, with your predictions, right? right? But listen, what happens is, is God says, see, I'm coming back. You have an opportunity, you have a chance, a choice. You can live right now in light of that promise. And what does living in light of the promise look like? You get ready, people. You get ready. I share this analogy all the time on this issue. When I was a young kid babysitting my two younger sisters, okay, and my parents would say, hey, listen, we're coming home at 10 p.m. I still remember one time when they called me at 8, we'll be home in 5. And I looked around the house. I mean, I got diapers hanging on the walls. You know what I'm saying? Like, like my sisters were, you know, hanging on the chandeliers. No toys are picked up. I got food all over the kitchen. And so, I mean, I look at them and I'm like, listen, no one says a word. Like, and we just threw stuff in closets. You know, we're like throwing out the refrigerator just outside. You know, we're doing whatever we possibly can. And then when my mom and dad walked in the door, ta-da, like, oh, you know, and I was singing Kubaya at the door, steps, hey, it was all good, you know, me and my, me and my sister just got done with a 30-minute Devo, we've been fasting all night, you know, for the glory of the Lord, right, like, you're trying to put on a show. We will not have that opportunity. He's coming back, and it'll be in an hour unknown. That's a promise. He says, see, I'm coming, so get ready. The question is, will we trust him? Do we believe, listen, that it's a promise or that God is a well-wisher? Hey, I'm coming back. I hope that makes you feel better about your trials. Hey, I'm going to return. As you see the dismay in our culture, I hope that puts a nice blanket around it. He's either a well-wisher, next slide, or this is true. God is not a well-wisher. He is a promise keeper. He's a promise keeper. And so then what happens, guess what? Is in our lives, we continually watch God say, you see? Look at this, I'm coming back. Get ready. We see him say, listen, I love you. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit to be your helper. Go and make disciples. We see God continually say, go forward. I'm with you. I've made promises. There's no need to be hesitant. 
Even though it seems unlog- illogical, even though it seems like it's, it's going to put you in a, a place of fear, go forward. There is something in your life tonight. An issue of obedience. General or specific. As you read the scripture, that you know the Spirit is convicting you to action. It's time now. But instead, you have watched yourself look at the command, look at the promise, and you're finding yourself hesitant, stopping short. But tonight, there's a new opportunity. Tonight, there's a chance together to hear and see the voice of God and the word of God saying, see, go forward then. There's not one need to be hesitant. It's time to talk to the neighbor. It's time to sell the house. It's time to transition jobs. It's time to finally share the gospel with your parents who you've been waiting for time and time again. It is time now to be bold in your neighborhood with the person of Christ. It's time now to release that addiction. God, but this thing has defined me. And God is saying, you see, your sins have been crucified on the cross of Christ. You see, you're free. Live in light of the promise. I'm not a well-wisher, I believe God would tell us. I keep my word. I keep my promises. So please trust me. But we have a moment just like Joshua and the Israelites. Will we? Will we trust him? Or is what we're doing here in the scripture just an opportunity for us to hope for a better life? I say that life until he returns is now in Christ. Let's stand together. Come on. Father, flood us right now. Flood us with truth. Flood us with hope. We apologize and ask for forgiveness for the ways we have lessened your character. I pray right now for a flood of faith to overwhelm us, God. I pray, Lord, that you will breathe over us to go forward and to move forward and to go on. God, we're just confessing we're fearful. We feel ill-equipped, God. We have doubts, Father. We have burdens. Will you right now release us that we can walk in obedience, God? Please. We're begging you tonight, Lord, will you help us trust you? And then, Lord, would you help us embrace the joy that comes in walking by faith and not by sight?